0: No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise.
3: Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts. Thousands of lives were suddenly ended by evil, despicable acts of terror. America was targeted for attack because we're the brightest beacon for freedom and opportunity in the world. And no one will keep that light from shining. Today, our nation saw evil, the very worst of human nature. And we responded with the best of America, with the daring of our rescue workers, with the caring for strangers and neighbors who came to give blood and help in any way they could. Tonight, I ask for your prayers for all those who grieve. This is a day when all Americans from every walk of life unite in our resolve for justice and peace. America has stood down enemies before, And we will do so this time. None of us will ever forget this day, yet we go forward to defend freedom and all that is good and just in our world.
1: On this episode of Newt's World, I wanted to devote an episode to reflecting and remembering the September 11th attacks on the 20th anniversary, which is this Saturday. As I was thinking about who could really talk about 9-11 in depth, I thought of my friend Senator Bob Kerry. Bob served on the 9-11 Commission and has an insider's perspective on how 9-11 happened, what went wrong, how we needed to make changes to our national security, and what ultimately followed. From 1989 to 2001, Bob Kerry represented Nebraska in the U.S. Senate. Before serving as a U.S. Senator, Kerry served a single term as Nebraska's Governor, in addition Carey served three years as a Navy SEAL in the U.S. Navy and is a Medal of Honor recipient. He's currently the chairman of Minerva University. I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Senator Bob Carey. It's hard to believe that it's been 20 years since the attack on 9-11. I'm curious, what do you remember most about that
4: day? Well, my 19-year-old son was born the day before. I went over to Hackensack, New Jersey, where he and my wife were, and watched the Twin Towers come down. I couldn't get back across the river until the next day. I was president of the new school for 10 years and was president that day. We had a dormitory down there. And what I remember is there was a tremendous amount of sort of personal suffering and anguish because nobody really knew who was in the building. It took a long time to identify everybody who was there. And there was concern that there was going to be another attack. That was a real possibility because this one we hadn't sized up. I mean, it was a fairly significant failure on the part of the feds. As you know, everything looks clear when you're looking back, and that's what we did with the 9-11 Commission. Two additional things I would say that I remember very, very well. One is, you know, you perfunctorily would say, gee, it's good to see you. But after 9-11, when you said that to somebody, you meant it, because you didn't know if you were going to be able to see him again. You just didn't know. And every time you looked at a police officer, a fire department, emergency rescue person after 9-11, they looked different. They weren't just ordinary people, because so many of them had died doing what they do, which is go to the building, move up the stairs, and put their lives at risk as a consequence.
1: I mean, it was a horrifying day. I remember I was actually meeting with two Army majors to talk about changing army doctrine. and They actually had come from the part of the Pentagon that got hit by a plane. And we were in the meeting and somebody walked in and said, plane has now hit the North Tower. And at the time, we thought of it, just somebody must have been a really stupid pilot. And then a few minutes later, somebody came in and said they hit the South Tower. And at that point, we knew it was a terrorist attack. Callista was working at the Capitol. And The Capitol Police basically told people to just run away from the Capitol. They had no serious planning for that kind of event. And so literally all the staffs came out of the buildings, ran down the streets away from the Capitol. And, of course, the plane that went down in Pennsylvania was, in fact, assigned to hit the Capitol if they could have gotten to it.
4: Passengers saved a lot of lives on that flight.
1: They did. is it remarkable? You were asked to serve on this commission, and I'm delighted that you did. What was the biggest thing you think you learned?
4: The biggest thing I've learned is that it's very difficult to identify a terrorist. Mohammed Atta, who led the organization of this one, was, you know, if you saw him in a cafe in Hamburg, Germany in 1999, with his laptop computer shopping for low-cost flight schools in the United States, you wouldn't say, that guy's a threat to America. They look like everybody else. In the old days, we tracked the Russian army, and we tracked their military, and we could see them from space, knew where they were, and they could calculate the threat as a consequence. In this case, you don't know who they are, so it's not easy to do. And then we missed, I think, the relative threat. You and I were both in the Congress in 93 when the World Trade Center was attacked the first time. I believe you were still there in 98 when Dar es Salaam and Nairobi were hit. That was actually quite an impressive military operation. To have a simultaneous attack on two embassies separated by hundreds of miles, and then the coal got hit in October, and we just didn't accumulate. We had a sense of security. Now George Tenet and others who were accumulating this evidence, they believed they knew it, they identified it. But what we learned on the 9/11 Commission was there was just an understandable lack of communication between, in this case, the FBI and the CIA. And I think we just all of us underestimated the threat. I mean, we made fun of. I think we called them nose, hair, and salami, the two guys that were intimately involved with the attack on the World Trade Center in 1993. We underestimated their capability. And as you know, in security, that is about the most dangerous thing you can do.
1: Well, it's really kind of amazing when you look back at it that these 19 hijackers submitted 24 visa applications. They got 23 visas. Right. They entered the U.S. like a total of 33 times through 10 different airports. They were going back and forth, just like regular tourists.
4: They were. As I said, we, I would say seriously underestimate that threat. And I say we, that's all of us. I mean, I, there's no innocent here when it comes to, you may have had one or two people that were really, there, you know, George and the CIA, the agencies were anxious as heck. There were a lot of people paying attention to it, but nowhere near enough. And The government wasn't organized properly and I hope we get a chance to talk about this, Newt, among the things that Congress didn't act on, and Congress did almost everything we recommended, Newt, when it came to reforming the executive branch, they did nothing that we recommended to organize the legislative branch differently. And I can tell you from eight years of being on the Intelligence Committee in the Senate, doing oversight of the executive branch is hard under the best of circumstances. But when almost all the activities are classified top secret, it's hard. It's gotten really difficult. And I I blend that even more on the 9 11 Commission because I had to do a lot of that work myself.
1: When I was Speaker, we created the Rumsfeld Commission looking at the nuclear threat. And Don came out of retirement to chair that in 97. And they discovered when they went out to the agency that the compartments were so tight that they were the only people who actually knew what was going on because they would go from person to person crossing the various compartmented information. And they would say to somebody, gee, if you knew X, would your opinion change? And they'd go, oh, well, if X was true, oh, yeah, my opinion changed totally. But they didn't know X because they were in the wrong compartment. They found that the, the degree to which we had crippled ourselves by making too many things secret in a way that you really couldn't get at information. And, of course, it was even truer when you get to the Break between the FBI's domestic responsibility and the intelligence community's overseas responsibility.
4: Right. The mission of the FBI is to bring people to justice. That's their mission. They identify somebody who's broken the law. They bring a case. It goes to court. The judge makes a decision. The jury makes a decision. Sentencing occur. That's the opposite of what intelligence collection does. Intelligence collection, in many cases, they don't want to arrest anybody. They'd rather keep that individual as an agent so they can work and accumulate and actually go on after a more difficult target. So their missions are entirely different. So I'm sympathetic as to why the communication was occurring. The other thing, and I think it's likely what happened in Afghanistan, and I do remember what Rumsfeld did because he presented his results new to the Senate committee. And the thing that he's able to do, and it's just very hard, I think, with the presidential briefing, he's able to do is strip away the ambiguity. So the big question there was, is North Korea's nuclear weapon, do they have the capability of reaching the United States? The agency would come up with an analysis and it would say, well, on the one hand, on the other hand, maybe sort of, you know, uh, they couldn't be as precise. Rumsfeld comes in and says, the answer is absolutely yes. So you can do with that whatever you want, but I've done this analysis and you can love, hate Donald Rumsfeld, but he was smart as heck and very clear in his presentation. The ambiguity in intelligence analysis can often be an enemy as well.
0: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought
1: in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board.
2: VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+. plus.
0: Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on AE Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on HayA. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Stay free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.
2: Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts will be a match. I promise.
1: President Clinton and I created the Hart-Rudman Commission to review all of national security, and we spent three years in a really thorough first one since 1947. And When we reported it to the Secretary of Defense, this was late in the Clinton administration, it must have been in either November or December, but he turned to us and he said, we're going to get hit. And he was so sober about it and so clear about it, he said, I don't know when it will happen, I don't know where it will happen, but there are too many people planning too many things.
4: Well, I don't know if you remember it or not, I do, only because of the 9-11 Commission. I read the speech that Rumsfeld gave on the 10th of September, 2001, about the need to really you know, root and branch, change the way the Pentagon is organized. I believe you're the one who said the Pentagon needs to become a square. There's a tremendous amount of bureaucracy inside of that building. I think a full bird colonel over there has more staff than Eisenhower did the day before Overlord. If Lloyd Austin decides he wants to change the color of the coffee cups in the mess, it'll take him a full four years to get it done. I'm overstating the case, I know for a fact, but it's very difficult. The more people you have participating in a decision, the harder it is to get a decision made.
1: Actually, I think McNamara, when he was Secretary of Defense, said trying to change the time at which people went to coffee was a major challenge inside the building.
4: <laughs> oh, yeah. I
1: know. By the way, the Rumsfeld speech, which I'm using in a report I'm doing on the need to profoundly overhaul the Pentagon. But the Rumsfeld speech of September 10th is amazing. He'd asked me to come in as an advisor back in, oh, I guess, March. And we had been working on a bunch of this stuff. I think had we not had 9-11, the degree to which Rumsfeld would have overhauled the Pentagon would have been shocking and would have been a major contribution.
4: I agree with that, yeah. And you remember the trouble Chuck Hagel got because he had said before he was nominated, one of the things he had to sort of unravel was he said, the bureaucracy at the Pentagon is bloated and he got in trouble. He was criticized when he went before the Armed Services Committee for having said that. All you have to do is walk through the building one time with your eyes open and you see that.
1: But that also goes back to your
4: earlier point. This is
1: a bipartisan comment. The Congress, both Republican and Democrat, has had no ability to look at itself.
4: He came in after the Intelligence Committees were established, after in, I think, 74, or 75. But if you're on the Intelligence Committee, you should not be on any other committee. That should be it. They should have appropriation authority. Instead, and the House Committee has more authority than the Senate Committee. We proposed equalizing, and they didn't either. Just look at the record. I mean, this is going to sound a little partisan. I'll equalize it in my second sentence. But I think Congressman Nunez turned the committee into something other than what it was supposed to be. And then what does it become? When the Democrats get the majority back, it becomes the impeachment committee. In both cases, it was a misuse of congressional oversight, which is already, in my view, I'd say grossly underperforming. It's tough business to do oversight and really difficult in a secret environment. By the way, I think you were being too generous going to a square. It probably ought to be a triangle. I
1: actually went to triangle. I said, if you could reduce the Pentagon to a triangle and turn the rest of it into a national museum of military affairs, we would have a better defense system.
4: You might actually want to consider saying, the problem is with the Pentagon, it's closer to two lines that never connect. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: you know, the building was completed the year I was born. I'm now 78. It was designed to be a manager of global war at a time when people had manual typewriters and carbon paper. So 23,000 people were trying to keep track of a worldwide American commitment. Today, we have laptops and smartphones and all those things. And you have to say to yourself, what's the relative efficiency of an iPad or a laptop compared to a manual typewriter with carbon paper? And literally, you should be able to shrink the Pentagon to at most a third of its current size.
4: Same way with Intel. Also, among the things, it's both a threat. It's a threat, uh, I would say, technically. The internet has made it much more difficult to defend ourselves, particularly in cyber, where you know somebody sitting in a basement can basically come after you. But the Iranians, the Chinese, the North Koreans, the Russians, they're all coming after us. So that threat, I mean, I can imagine a situation where the Fifth Fleet gets disabled in the Persian Gulf as a consequence of hacking. The nature of the threat has dramatically changed since 2001. As a consequence of the thing I'm holding right now, an iPhone and other sorts of technological changes that makes it really, really difficult to go after somebody who looks like you and me.
1: Well, you know, it's fascinating because we're doing a paper right now on TikTok. TikTok now has more hours of viewing than Facebook. And it's a Chinese system and they're gathering data and people are paying the Chinese to allow them to gather data. You look at this and you think, Are we just totally nuts? And the answer, of course, is yes. We are totally nuts. And one of the examples I have to ask you about, because it fits right back into the 9-11 Commission report, you all named Khalid Sheikh Mohammed as the mastermind, the principal architect of the 9-11 attacks. As I understand it, he's now in pre-trial.
4: 20 years later.
1: I mean, how can this possibly make any sense?
4: Well, I mean, his nephew is in a maximum security prison. He's already been sentenced for the 93 bombing. No, it doesn't make any sense at all. And the evidence is absolute. Now and again, a lawyer will tell me, oh, no, that all of his confessions have been compromised because they were delivered through enhanced interrogations. I doubt that that would hold up that accusation in any courtroom. Personally, I think they should have brought him into civilian court, tried him and got him out. The Obama administration did that, but they made a terrible mistake and didn't call the mayor ahead of time. So they were starting to move him up to Brooklyn to try him over in Manhattan. You know, and if you don't let the mayor know that's going to happen, it makes it difficult to carry out the plan. But, yeah, it's it's ridiculous that he's in pretrial after 20 years.
1: They could have moved a civilian court to Guantanamo.
4: Yeah, they could have done that as well.
1: But, I mean, I'm sitting here as an American thinking... My country is now so wrapped up in itself that 20 years afterwards, and then I'm told that the pre-trial may literally run for another year, and that the first step of the pretrial will be proving that the guy who's the judge is legitimate as the judge.:
4: He would either have been executed or be serving a life sentence right now if they'd have brought him to federal court as he did his nephew, who planned the first attack on the World Trade Center. I completely agree with you. It's gone on way, way too long. It must be agonizing for the families. I know it was when the 9-11 Commission, all the way back then, it was agonizing that we still hadn't done anything.
1: The experience of withdrawal from Afghanistan around the 20th anniversary must just be a further round of pain.
4: Yeah, I'm sure that's true.
1: So in your own mind, what should Americans take Out of 20 years of trying to deal with all this.
4: Oh, gosh. Well, first of all, I hope we don't hunker down in the bunker like we did after Vietnam, because if nothing else, the collapse of the Afghanistan government and military forces and the resurgence of the Taliban shows you what a relatively small presence of military force of Americans can do. Lots of mistakes over the last 20 years. I said it before. It's worth saying again. When you're looking back, it's so easy to see mistakes made. We made a lot of them. We probably, after we defeated the Taliban in late 2001, early 2002, maybe we should have brought them into the government. I don't know. And then secondly, once you try to stand up a military and create a government that looks like us in a country that's still largely tribal, that's hard to do. But we were well motivated because we know ourselves how important freedom is, how important it is to be able to decide what you want to do and what you're going to say, et cetera. And we prized that. And we did create a free space, mostly in Kabul, but in some of the outer provinces as well. But it's impossible, actually, for me to look at that and say, well, it was all worthwhile. I mean, watching the Taliban come back into the government is painful. And if you lost a loved one in 9-11, this is the 20th anniversary of 9-11, it's got to be doubly painful.
1: I think that it's so difficult for Americans to contemplate losing. But I think if, unless we can have an honest conversation... About the 20 years, it's very hard to see how we get the scale of reform we're going to have to have if we're going to survive in the future.
4: I think that's right. In this particular case, I don't see it as much as losing, as we just decided to withdraw. And by the way, I think one of the mistakes is we picked the wrong guy. We backed Ghani instead of Abdullah Abdullah. Abdullah Abdullah is still there. You know, Ghani took X million dollars and went to UAE to get away from it all. Again, I'll repeat it. First of all, it's easier for me to criticize what somebody in power is doing than it is, as you know, once you're in there and you're having to make the decisions, it gets measurably more difficult. And secondly, it's easy to look back. My hope is that the anguish that we feel, the anger that we feel doesn't cause us to get to a point where we're afraid to do any kind of intervention in the world, regardless of what it is, whether it's low level, high level, because for the most part, our interventions are well motivated. You can disagree with them. So oh, we should never have gone to Iraq. And by the way, they have an election in October. Right now it's headed in the right direction. It's a burden to have been born in America and care about freedom. We are still the most powerful nation economically, politically, and militarily. It'd be better to have been born someplace else. It's easier. It's hard to assume the burden of citizenship in the United States. It isn't easy. And you find yourself in these moments where you look back and say, oh, gosh, we made a mistake. There's so much that we can now see that causes us to reach conclusions of intervening in what the decision makers are doing. But let me put it this way. If the internet was around in 1777, George Washington had been relieved of command, you know, and he wasn't relieved of command because that was a bad year for his leadership.
1: And at least a third of the Congress was trying to figure out how to fire him. It was amazing. Would you mind just for a couple minutes describing the university you're working with because it is, in terms of a positive future and the kind of innovation that has made America a remarkable country, I think you may be on to something really big.
4: Well, I'm sure you feel the same way. Higher education is really important. We still have a comparative advantage in that space. Among the things I typically say to people when they say, isn't China overtaking us? I say, yeah, in some areas they are, but answer this question. How long is the line of people trying to get into the United States and how long is the line of people trying to get into China? As far as I can tell, there is no line trying to get into China. And there's a very long line trying to get in here, in part because of our university systems, The challenge, it seems to me, is very much like the Pentagon. There's a tendency to get bureaucratized and change is hard. I mean, if you talk to anybody in higher education about changing the general education curriculum, they'll describe it like a failed military campaign. So we begin, Newt, by saying you can teach human beings how to think critically. And every university has it on their website, and very few actually start and say, how do you do it? There's lots of research on how people learn and how they organize themselves and how they think. So our first year, we teach our undergraduates how to think. It's completely need blind. We don't use the SAT or the ACT because those things are, as far as I'm concerned, they're rigged. So if you're accepted, that's when you look at your financial capacity. We don't try to get geographical diversity as well. It's just, you know, do you get across the line? And the second thing we do is you we say, we're not going to spend a penny unless you can actually demonstrate it's adding value to the cause. So we built a virtual classroom. You open your laptop and you go to class, meaning I can recruit faculty all over the country. I can recruit students all over the world. You don't need to physically be where the school itself is being taught, although it is a residential program. So our kids come to San Francisco their first year. They spend an entire year essentially learning how to think, acquiring the habits of mind to do simple things. And then they select what they're going to study. They go to six different countries, one each semester for the next three years before they graduate but we're collecting data all the time. We evaluate our faculty through our software, we evaluate our students, we take net promoter scores, and we're constantly changing the curriculum. We don't have to have meetings to change the curriculum because the data we collect shows us what works and what doesn't work. We have a long line of faculty that wanna teach at Minerva in spite of the fact that we don't have tenure, in part because we wanna maintain a very high standard of teaching. And as you know, I can be a great teacher one year and a lousy teacher the next, just because I lose interest in doing it or something happens in my life. So if you talk to the students, they'll tell you why they like what Minerva's offering. And we put almost as much time in the extracurricular work, hooking it up with businesses, not-for-profits, government, so they learn, as you and I have learned, when you're doing problem solving, oftentimes the choice is between bad and terrible. It's not between good and lousy. It's bad and terrible. And you got to make a decision. And the bad news is sometimes you make a good decision, sometimes you don't, but you got to live with it either way. You can't point the finger and blame it on society. You got to step up and accept responsibility for it. So these are the sorts of things that we're doing. And it's quite exciting. We just got regional accreditation from WASC, now the chairman of it. We just recruited our first president and it's fun because it is important. We have 600 students, we'll probably grow to 12 or 1500. And you can see these young people, they're going to be leaders. They're going to be problem solvers in the private sector of government. They're going to be able to do things that they wouldn't have been able to do without the opportunity to go to the school.
1: So and people can find it, what's the URL?
4: Listeners can find all they need to know about Minerva University on the website. It's minerva.edu. We'll
1: put it on our show page so people can link to it. I remember you talking to me, I think, almost 10 years ago about this concept. I've always been fascinated by it, and I think we need this kind of renewal and this kind of innovative thinking to continue probing what's possible.
4: In self-government, it's essential that individuals acquire the capacity to think critically. And all too often, they tend to orient to where they're expected to be. The most important thing for somebody who's thinking critically is having the courage necessary. If they're the only one in a group of 100 that's saying no while everybody else is saying yes, they got to say no. You got to have the courage to stand up and tell people what you actually believe based upon your own analysis. It does get shut down too often today, in part because, you know, way too many people are woke and, you know, they don't want to have anything that's offensive said out loud, but in part because it's hard. You'd much rather get a round of applause and get booed.
1: Listen, I really appreciate your taking the time to be with us today, and it's always invigorating to talk with you because your mind never stops. I really loved when we were co-chairing things.
4: The Alzheimer's one in particular, we made an impact. That was good. That was good work.
1: I remember when you and I reported to the Senate, the largest number of senators I'd ever seen at that kind of a hearing, and it was because every one of them had a family connection to Alzheimer's. Their interest in our report was very personal. Thank you to my guest and good friend, Senator Bob Kerry. You can read more about the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks, and you can also be connected to Minerva University on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers, our producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Pendley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360 if you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.
0: work.
2: Zumo Play.